Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the coup d'etat edition. My name is Brett Whitmire, I'm an editorial and features writer, and I am here in the Journal Newsroom studio on Friday, January 15th. Last week it was Star Wars, this week it's Bad Spellers. We've also heard from charitable souls like Mr. Wonderful, Kevin O'Leary, who offered to invest $1 million in Canadian energy if Rachel Donnelly steps down. Instead of that, the NDP did its best PC impression and instilled a two-year wage freeze for non-union government workers. We'll talk about all that, plus the end of ministerial mandate letters. As always in the press gallery, I promise to invest my million-dollar smile with only the thought of the absolute good of this podcast. Here in the studio, meaning me no disrespect, we have... Well. <laughs> some disrespect. We have city columnist Paula Simons. Good morning, Brent Whitmire, and your million-dollar smile. <laughs> uh, provincial affairs columnist Graham Thompson. Hello. And provincial affairs reporter Mariam Ibrahim. Hello. You all look wonderful. As Ryan Jackson will prove with his video clip. Uh, <laughs> we'll start with our weekly segment, which I call, What's New in the Revolutionary Groundswell? An <laughs> online meme was spawned this week when a Facebook commenter on a global Edmonton story suggested we should throw over overthrow the NDP like a coup d'etat, the spelling K-U-D-A-T-A-H. The Huffington Post helpfully defined coup d'etat as attempting to forcibly seize control of Alberta's government regardless of one's inability to spell. It's another week closer to February 9th and the impending revolution. Is it a mistake to laugh off these voices or do we just need a good laugh right now? You know, I love a good Twitter meme as much as the next girl. the trouble with, with this one is that the genesis of it is a bit unclear. The Facebook commenter who left this comment did so on November 30th. Mm. Uh, it was on a global story about Bill 6 and the and, and uh, workplace safety on farms. And the person who left the comment doesn't seem to be a real person. Their Facebook page is sort of non-existent. Oh. And so I, I spent... I spent an entire afternoon down the rabbit hole <laughs> trying to find this person uh, before I decided that there's actually no way for me to tell whether the person who spoiled coup d'etat this week that way was actually a right-wing nutter associated with Albertans first mm-hmm. or a left-wing troll making fun of right-wing people or somebody who was just a random freelance mischief maker. Be that as it may, mm-hmm. um, as I say, that post went up November 30th. It was only last week that it started being widely shared, a screen capture on Twitter, and somebody said on Twitter, hey, can we make coup d'etat trend uh, as a thing? And then suddenly all of the people who I think were very frustrated with watching the Albertans First Movement and uh, the whole Greg Clark notion that you can overthrow the government with a plebiscite, mm-hmm. it was kind of like... George Clark, not George, Greg sorry, Clark. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All, all takes of opposition <laughs> to a whole new meeting. <laughs> <laughs> let, let, let me, let me, can I back up? And yeah, sure. All right. It was like the dam burst, and all of this pent-up satire just came pouring out, and, you know, the, the regular Twitter folk were there, and all kinds of people, you know, across the national media, coup d'etat, spelt with a K-U-D-A-T-A-H, trended across Canada on Twitter. It, it became less about the original comment and more about, I think, a satiric reaction to uh, people, people who just don't know what to say. You can't, you can't argue rationally mm-hmm. with the Albertans' first people. So if you can't argue rationally with them, maybe laughing at them is the best rebuttal. No, I would agree completely. This is like a safety valve 
um, people were getting frustrated with the uh, the plebiscites. You know, it's time to get this government out of office. If a, if a commissioner of oath signs your plebiscite, yes, that means the lieutenant governor go. has to honor it. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. The frustration people were having at these right wingers who are still angry and bitter over the election results. I think this is it's uh, Paulus Wright laughing at this is the best way of dealing with it. And in politics, people can fear you; they can respect you. When they start laughing at you, you're done. Mm-hmm. And I think this is one way of undermining this lunatic uh, fringe who are trying to overthrow the government. Uh, let's move on to our lightning round. Who won, Kevin O'Leary or Rachel Notley? To remind people who maybe didn't hear or don't remember, she said, uh, well, the last time wealthy businessmen tried to tell Albertans how to vote, I ended up becoming premier. So now, if now a wealthy Toronto businessman wants to tell Albertans how to vote, I say bring it on. Harkening uh, back to that moment during the spring election when um, five uh, Tory-connected um, uh, men sort of stood up at a press conference and told Albertans to make sure they were, quote, thinking straight when they got to the ballot box <laughs> on election day. Um, or they, or a, they would take away money for hospitals for sick children. Yeah. Yes. Um, and uh, that obviously uh, backfired spectacularly, uh, was cited as a really big sort of uh, PR fumble on the part of the Jim Prentice Tories in the sort of waning days of the election as it sort of perhaps was becoming clear that they were really um, not doing as well as they had hoped they would be at the outset of that election. And the reaction to um, that that uh, sort of quip from Notley was really, uh, I think, generally positive. Like even people who were, who are, you know, uh, who I think would identify as Tories or people who ran as Tories in in the last election were sort of saying, you know, wow, that was a real mic drop moment. Good job. Uh, the people who didn't like that comment, I think, were the people who are always never going to like what Rachel Notley <laughs> has to say anyway. But I think Kevin O'Leary's won also in this situation because of the amount of coverage that he's getting. We're still talking about it days for later for free. And, you know. you know, and, and CBC has really been having a bit of a field day with this. And then they brought Arlene Dickinson on Power, Power and Politics the other day to sort of uh, offer a bit of a rebuttal to him. But, uh, you know, na- and now and now we're having discussions about whether Kevin O'Leary is going to run for the uh, Conservative Party leadership. So, you know, n- now I'm sort of starting to wonder, like, how calculated was all of this? It's it's really uh, I think I think he's getting a lot of uh, free publicity out of this. And I think you can tell that he really enjoys it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's had his million dollar moment. He's been on CBC. He's been on chat. And as, as Miriam says, he's using this now as a springboard to talk about becoming the next leader of the Federal Conservative Party. So, you know, for very little capital outlay, uh, Kevin O'Leary has leveraged uh, has leveraged his big fat mouth uh, very splendidly here. But but well, I, you know, he, he's taken the page from Donald Trump. Uh, people have likened him to Trump, and I think it's a fair analogy uh, that he's making this outrageous comment, like you know, like Trump does, and throwing putting money up, saying, you know, if someone does something outrageous, I'll give you a million dollars or invest a million dollars, whatever, in the oil uh, oil business. Um, Yes, did he win? He got attention. But I got to think, this is making him look like a complete buffoon. Well, also anybody in the oil industry. I mean, anybody who understands. I mean, yes. for, for a guy. A million who, dollars goes a long yeah. way. Yeah. For, for, I mean, for a guy who, who's, who's, whose persona is that he understands business. I mean, Andrew Leach, who's the, uh, oh, God, uh, the, the, the professor of economics and, and, and energy policy at the U of A produced a fabulous graph that went viral on Twitter uh, that showed, you know, this is this is the the path of investment in Alberta's oil patch with Kevin O'Leary's million dollars <laughs> and without Kevin O'Leary's million dollars. They looked strikingly similar. Uh, it actually, I mean, Leach's comment, although it was it, it was another great mic drop moment of of rebuttal, 
also I think underlined for me and actually made me feel a little bit better about the cratering price of oil and the disastrous stock market because what Leach's graph showed is that there's actually still a remarkable degree <laughs> of investment in Alberta's energy sector by companies that are playing the long game. And it just demonstrated how little O'Leary understands about the macroeconomics of uh, Alberta's oil industry. I mean, a million dollars. I think that he knew it wasn't much money. He did it just to get his name in the media because that fixes some sort of like a target, a million dollars. But why not him. say something lo- bigger? I mean, as as Arlene Dickinson said on CBC, you can put any amount of money up there. Yeah. It's a challenge that you know is not Absolutely. going to be fulfilled. So why not say a billion or, you know, five million? One trillion dollars. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's a very bare naked ladies Canadian moment. You can buy a lot of you can buy a lot of Dijon ketchup <laughs> with a million dollars. You gotta wonder if O'Leary's thinking, you know, Trump and the US is doing so well by being outrageous and making stupid comments. I'll do the same thing. I'll see how it actually plays up here. You're hoping the people in Canada are smarter than that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We're hoping. But here we are talking about it. Uh, moving on to that uh, government wage freeze announced Wednesday by Finance Minister Joe Cece. The NDP has been seen and, uh, you know, labor-oriented, civil servant-friendly, but they've got some negotiating to do. Uh, is is this just optics, as uh, union leader Guy Smith says? Well, talking about something that doesn't make a huge impact, I mean, when we're talking about the amount of money that they said they would be able to save, which is really just money that they're not going to be paying out for scheduled increases, it's, it's what, $58, $57 million over two years, uh, in ter- and and you can compare that with a six point one billion dollar deficit. I right, mean, this is not right. really making any sort of discernible impact uh, in in any real way. We've seen this before. Uh, you go back, and I did a column on this. You go back to um, Stelmac the Debray, same thing. So did Redford. They can do it relatively easily. They can just say to the um, non-unionized uh, managers, we're going to freeze your wages, roll them back, whatever. There's nothing they can do about it. It's a signal to the public. It's a signal to the other people going into union contract negotiations. And we've got a lot this year right now, AUPE, teachers later on, the nurses next year. This is a way of the government saying, we're setting the agenda here. We're going to freeze the wages have actually, you know, of course, done the same thing for the MLAs, at least the cabinet ministers as well. Um, but it just shows how governments are lacking in imagination in a lot of ways, and also how this government's in the same trap the conservatives were in as well. The NDP inherited um, a system that relies too much on oil prices, and right now they're struggling with that. And they've come up with the same solution in some ways as the old PCs, and that is we'll send a signal to the public sector that we're going to try and keep your wages to a minimum. The difference is the PCs are a bit more open about it. You actually had Stalmax saying, I hope that people will voluntarily follow this. CC wouldn't even go there. Another thing we've seen in the past is that, yes, they'll freeze the wages of managers, and then when the unionized workers get a pay increase, the government then quietly goes back and gives the same pay increase to the managers. And CC would not even go on the record and say he wasn't going to do that. So it's uh, eerily similar to the things we've seen before with PC governments. You know, it, it, it's a bit hard cheese on some of those lower-level managers. I mean, some of those people are making two hundred and fifty, three hundred thousand dollars a year, and some of them are really not. Some of them are making, you know, seventy and eighty thousand dollars a year. Actually, sixty thousand. I, I said seventy. It was a misprint. Actually, my fault. It was sixty thousand. The low end 
mm. for these managers. You know, so there are unionized people who are making more than that. I mean, so it's a bit. Yeah, I mean, I do feel badly for the managers who get taken out and spanked behind the woodshed, even if it's symbolic, because even though that, you know, $28 million may not be much of a saving on the budget this year, if you were a person who was expecting a two point, you know, a 2% bump, that's, that is a blow to your family finances. That said, I mean, the real challenge ahead for the Notley government is going to be those big public sector union negotiations because Rachel Notley got elected with the strength and support of those unions. She can't just throw them overboard. And yet at the same time, her government has to play hardball. They just don't have the money to make giant wage concessions to those public sector unions. What, what kind of options do these do, does the NDP have in terms of uh, uh, send, softening the blow of this, you know, uh, under $30 oil um, huge deficit hole, uh, trying to sort of create a culture of investment or, or whatever. Uh, what options do they have to sort of placate people and keep keep the it's province rolling? Really, it's very limited. Like they're boxed into a corner. Uh, they've made promises when it comes to we'll keep on uh, delivering government services. We're going to invest in infrastructure. They're borrowing a lot of money. They're really caught. Uh, they're caught in a squeeze right now between the old way of doing things and what they hope to do, new ways of doing things, they're caught right now in, in a vice, and there's no easy ways out. Do you, do you guys ever feel that we're sort of in a, a perpetual state of, uh, yeah, the, the province is the way it is no matter who's in charge, whoever's in? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, because because as long as we're trapped uh, on on this commodity price roller coaster, uh, there are certain limitations to what any government can do. Uh, and there's no easy way off that roller coaster. I mean, the story today I saw just as I was coming in here was about Norway. I mean, Norway has always held out to, you know, to be the example to Albertans. It's like when your mother said, you know, Marnie down the street always eats her carrots. <laughs> um, people say, see, look how well Norway manages its money. <laughs> well, Norway is now also in facing a budget calamity because it, like us, is dependent. If you're Venezuela, if you're Russia, I mean, even the Saudis who've done this to themselves are facing a hundred billion dollar budget deficit. The difference is, of course, people are blaming the NDP for everything now. Like the right wingers are saying it's the NDP's fault. Mm -hmm. uh, they're almost blaming the NDP for the price of oil going down. Uh, but they're blaming them, of course, for everything else. But there's that, there is that sort of hidden maybe message that they really do think the NDP has caused all these problems. But if you go back, Harper was saying how d what a disaster the NDP government was for Alberta with like but the days of them being sworn in. Having said all that, this is still going to be a huge problem for the NDP. If the price of oil continues to languish for the next two or three years, people will get upset. And in the past, we've seen Albertans blame the government. What happens, they'll toss out Don Getty. They'll put pressure on Stalmac to get out. They will blame their political leadership for the price of oil going down. But, you know, people... I saw a, a meme floating around Facebook from, uh, I think it was like Occupy Democrats. So these are like, you know, people who are working for Bernie Sanders and, mm -hmm. and Hillary Clinton praising, uh, oh, you know, Barack Obama and saying, you know, under Obama's administration, he's brought down the price of gasoline. And thought, no. <laughs> See, also, also, that's not how that works. Uh, but, you know, if, if, if people... I guess, you, you know, people don't want complicated answers. They want simple answers. And... Uh, if you're looking for a simple answer, then I guess you're not going to ever solve the problem. Mm.
a few loose ends wrapped up this week. Deborah Draver was welcome back into the NDP fold a little too late for our podcast last week. Although we were so clever. We, we knew that. Yeah. We, we are prescient. Um, an investigation into document shredding turned up very little, possibly because of document shredding. And <laughs> the NDP managed to sell the last plane in the government fleet. But I wanted to turn to a story that maybe didn't get that much attention. Um, but Graham, you wrote this uh, column about the disappearance of mandate letters. Um, publicly available lists that spell out responsibilities, objectives for cabinet ministers. What do? Why do you think the NDP has opted to toss these out? The yeah, interesting uh, question. We saw mandate letters appear ten years ago with Ed Stelmack brought them out to show he was different, more open, and accountable than um, his predecessor uh, <laughs> Ralph Klein. That guy. And we've seen them uh, every time a new premier comes in. Um, they bring them up rel relatively quickly. Uh, Redford did it within a month becoming premier. I think it took um, Prentice two days to bring up the mandate letter saying, here's what the ministries are expected to do and the ministers are, are going to do. And they set out, they put out, out goals. Very often they can be really vague, like let's make tourism a number one priority. For the tourism department. That's right. <laughs> uh, but sometimes they can actually spell things out, like let's get a new education act in place. Uh, they can and we'll do that. So they set the spell out goals. Um, they have been gimmicks, but at the same time, we're seeing other jurisdictions, Ontario, um, bring them in. We saw, in fact, they did a report card this week to see how they've done in Ontario with these mandate letters. Trudeau brought in relatively specific ones when he became uh, prime minister. So they, they can be really useful. And the government in Alberta is saying, this new government is saying, we're not bringing in mandate letters after they said they would, or at least hinted they would last year, and now the Premier is saying, no, I won't, because we already have, in a sense, um, collective mandate letters in the election platform, in the budget last year, and in the throne speech. But I think what's actually happened here is if you give good, um, reliable mandate letters that have specific goals, it becomes a target. And Notley was saying this week, well, the old PC governments would play with these and make them gimmicks. Well, fine, then don't make it a gimmick. Make it something substantial. But they won't do that. And to me, it's because they're still struggling, they've got problems, and they don't want to actually telegraph some of their, um, their goals in case they don't meet them or have to change. Yeah, I, I think that that excuse that you were uh, given, Grammar, I guess that that reasoning that the former governments use them as sort of gimmicks or use them as things that were PR very vague and PR stunts. Yeah, I mean, if that's if that's your characterization of them, then do better with them. I think um, you know that's not an unreasonable expectation for people to have. I think if you if you have a problem with the way something was done in the past, then you are new and were elected to bring in change. Do better with it. Um, so I don't know that 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 sort of uh, the justification really I think rang a little bit hollow because it doesn't really pass the smell test. There's a better justification, which is that mandate letters could be perceived as the premier telling ministers what to do and I mean throttling them, taking out some degree of ministerial responsibility. And I think it's arguable that you know for Ed Stelmack who had a lot of ministers and who needed to signal right away not just transparency but that he was in control after having taken over from Klein as the third place candidate uh, that they had a political motive that wasn't just about PR for the public it was about signaling to his ministers that he was the boss and he was in charge in some ways Notley doesn't need to do that her cabinet is tiny it's really clear that you know that the that the mandate is coming from her directly. So I'm not as fussed about it. I understand you know what Graham and Miriam are saying about the hypocrisy of the excuse, 
But the thing I, is, I, I gotta say, Paula, fine. If she said that last May, yeah. fine. But yeah. to say it to us all last yes. year, they're coming, they're coming. We'll get them to you. They're coming, they're coming later this year. And then, uh, no, we're not gonna do it. After we pushed them and pushed them for days, where are they? They finally said, uh, we're not doing them. Yeah, and that does raise some eyebrows too, right? I mean, how come all of a sudden, you know, one week they're, well, just wait wait for the next session we're, we're bringing forward a throne speech and in that, and in that time we're going to, you know, uh, deliver mandate letters so that Albertans can see them and ministers can see them. And then suddenly it's like, well, actually, no, we've, they, they've always been a gimmick. But wait, what? It, which is it? Like, was it something you wanted to do and actually had plans to do or was it a gimmick all along? I mean, it's just it's just there seems to be some, some, some disconnect there and... And uh, yeah, I, I think I think Graham's right with his criticism in that respect. Maybe they got her caught in the shredders. I don't know. <laughs> well, God knows it was caught in the shredders. That's the whole problem. <laughs> it's time for good stuff from the gallery. Each week we share something we've enjoyed, often but not always, with a political connection. Miriam? It is uh, from Australia's The Age. It is by um, Julia Madhu. I think I'm saying that correctly. And it's called The Big Sleep. And it's about a, um, a couple... Um, of scientists. A couple of scientists, <laughs> uh, a married couple though, um, who uh, had sort of gone on in age and 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 believed that they had lived a really uh, full life, one that they had accomplished a lot in and um, had been getting more frail. It's a really fascinating piece that um, sort of takes you through this decision that they made um, through the eyes of their of their children and um, and is really a, an interesting sort of case. For Paula. Well, Miriam's choice is about an end-of-life story. Mine is about a beginning-of-life story. Ooh, good segue. It's called Ted Cruz, Made in Canada, and it is an unbelievably delightful read from uh, Jason Markasoff and Alan Abel of McLean's. It's a double-header thing where they look not just at Ted Cruz's Calgary childhood and his formative uh, childhood years on the Elbow River, but also at sort of the birth of birtherism and where this American obsessive fear of of the idea of a president being born outside the country comes from. And it traces various other U.S. presidents and presidential candidates who were accused of having been accidentally born on the Canadian side of the border. Okay, so we have the end of life, beginning of life, and mine's the future of life. Ooh. <laughs> a report this week from Berkeley on climate change, 2015, warmest year on record. Um, there's a really good decimation on the Weather Network. Uh, it's interesting. Um, you have experts saying this should put to rest the deniers denying it, but no, they're still <laughs> denying it. They're questioning these numbers. Uh, it's fascinating to watch this psychological battle in some ways, but the deniers are saying they will ref refuse to accept these figures or to try and question the figures or call it a conspiracy. I'm going to go back to where we started in this podcast. My Good Stuff is an oldie but goodie about Kevin O'Leary called He's not a billionaire. He just plays one on TV. Uh, it's uh, from 2012 from the Globe and Mail's report on business, which explored O'Leary, not his self-proclaimed uh, myth, but his business exploits and somewhat less than wonderful investment record. Previous episodes of the Press Gallery are at edmontonjournal.com slash opinion or on the Edmonton Journal SoundCloud feed. The show pops up most Friday afternoons and can be retrieved via iTunes, TuneIn Radio, and the Edmonton Journal website. We're all on Twitter. You should also pick, check out the Journal's Facebook page. Uh, thank you, Paul, Miriam, and Graham for joining me in the newsroom studio. Tune in next week when I don't know what we're going to do. Uh, I don't know what we're going to do. <laughs> That's all for now from the Press Gallery. Thanks for listening.